So we have been in a short series on the topic, topic of unity, of church unity, of unity in Christ. It's very important in an international setting that we, from time to time, cover this. And we are doing this also in our small groups, our life groups. If you're not in a life group, join one. It's a great uh, way to connect with others and grow in Christ. So we are in the book of Ephesians again, but we're jumping two chapters now to chapter 4. We were in chapter 2, now we're in chapter 4, and we're doing verses 1 through 16 today. Ephesians chapter 4, I'll read it for us. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on, the, on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And verse 9, and saying, he ascended, what does it mean, but that he had also descended into the, to the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the, of, to the stature, sorry, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us and you would keep us even now, that you would make your face to shine upon us, that as we reflect on your word, on your supernatural revelation, that we would know that you are God and that we are your people. But you must help us as always by the Spirit. We are closed, we are cold, we are hard, apart from your grace. And so would you help us now? Help us help this church now. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, they call Belgium the cycling, bicycling community country in the entire world. The best place to be a cyclist. Now, I'm not a cyclist, but I have been learning about uh, cycling and the cycling community, especially the professional cycling community. And if you did not know this, the professional bicycle community and cycling community is, I'll give you a couple big words here, eccentrically legalistic. The professional biking community, bicycling community, excuse me, I'm sorry, you're not supposed to say biking, 
bicycling community is eccentrically legalistic. And what I mean is that they have very strange rules that you must follow if you want to be considered a true cyclist. For example, you must always wear black bicycling shorts, though you can wear any color sock that you want. Never blue or pink or red. It must be black. Never, under any circumstances, should you lift your bike above your head. Ever. Never do it. I don't know why. Never do it. Never put a car or a bike on your car's roof rack unless the bike is worth more than the car itself. You would be amazed at how often that is true. Now, some of these strange rules are open to interpretation, but there is one rule that is absolutely, unequivocally not. True bicyclists must always shave their legs. They must always shave their legs. That's actually a picture of one of the most revered cyclists of all time named Peter Sagan. And he was once chastised by the cycling community for having the nerve to turn up to a race. How do you say it in French? All natural. Okay, listen. Shaving one's legs is important to cyclists. Very important. But it is actually not for superstitious reasons. It's physics. Simple physics. Shaved legs, as compared to unshaved ones, lead to faster times. There was one study done that said that a rider could save 70 seconds for every 40 kilometers they rode. Now, if you know anything about cycling and how close they are together in times, that is a huge difference. Shave your legs. What I love about this story is Despite the cutthroat, intense nature of the cycling community, there's also something of a group, a unity, a camaraderie that they all are in. There are ways that the community helps one another to push each other to newer and higher heights. It's not that you must do these things to be part of their group. It's that if you are in their group, you will do these things things. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4 that Christians are to walk in a manner, I may not have this slide, sorry. They are to walk, just listen, they, may, they walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to mean the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Here's what I think he means very simply. I think Paul means that we are meant to grow as Christians together. We are meant to push each other to deeper and greater maturity in Jesus Christ. How? Not by telling each other to shave our legs, but by engaging in deep, meaningful, and sometimes difficult ways that we learn in the kingdom And so we are going to look at that with three points this morning. This is an important passage and important for our church in this moment. And so first, we must grow out of immaturity. To get there, we must grow out of immaturity. Okay, verse one. 
I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So we're obviously not in a study of the book of Ephesians, but I want you to understand something about the structure of it. It's very important, very Pauline. This is very similar to what he'll do in other books of the Bible. So Ephesians is broken up into two sections. The first section you could say is the the what. The what. The what of God, of salvation, of Jesus Christ, all of those things. And the second half is the now what. Now what? The first three chapters are about the reality of what God has done in Christ. It is what is true now that Christ has lived for us, died for us, and risen to life for us. And the second half is about how you do that. How you then live. Theologians call this the indicative and the imperative. The indicative and the imperative. The indicative is what is already true. It is what is already true. Like you pick up a newspaper and you read the news that has already happened. It is already something that is, that is in history. It is already true. The imperative is how we must now live in response to the truth. In response to the truth. For example, when a man and woman say, I do at the altar, they go from unmarried to married, right? Simple. Before God and the church, the two become one. Now, let's say you're in one of those services where you're seeing friends get married. They're going to get married, and then the preacher says, and now I pronounce them husband and wife. And they run down under confetti, down the aisle, and cheers are all around them as they are so happy now that they have said I do to each other. And they go out those church doors, and there are two cars there, and the husband gets in one, the wife gets in the other, and they drive off never to see each other again. That would, of course, make no sense. The indicative of their wedding must lead to the imperative of their marriage. I do should lead to, I will now live with you and for you. The indicative to the imperative. Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 are the indicative. Here is what Christ has done. Here is what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has won for anyone who has trusted in him. We're now beginning in chapter four. We see the imperative. Here is how you must now live in your response to Jesus and his grace. So what is that? What do we do? How do we live? What is the goal? And we are going to jump right to it. Ephesians 4.12 says this. The body of Christ must be built up until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. So do you hear that? You see the indicative and the imperative there? The indicative is that Christ has won us by grace. The imperative is that we now must grow up Our spiritual destiny is to sprout into a beautiful flower. 
to grow into a strong and gloriously fruitful tree, to mature into men and women who reflect the glory and love of God. Now listen, to say that we must become mature means that we are, of course, in part immature. Paul says that we are a lot like children, so that we may no longer be children, he says. And so I think that we are a lot like spiritual toddlers. We are a lot like spiritual toddlers. And if you know anything about toddlers, you're going to understand what I mean. For example, toddlers are gullible, aren't they? Toddlers are gullible. They do not know what is good for them. They do not know what is bad for them. We put up childproof locks and those little inserts and electrical outlets and have poison control on speed dial because toddlers don't know any better. Christians are immature like toddlers. Paul says in verse 14 that we are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, we have this problem of eating whatever is in front of us. We listen to whatever anyone tells us. We just take in and accept the last thing anyone says and go with it. We tend to be gullible. Okay, toddlers also super self-centered, right? Toddlers, totally self-centered. It is all about them all of the time. The second they are hungry or thirsty, they have a dirty diaper. The second they are bored, they scream for our attention. They are tiny people who live to take and take to live. I hate to break it to you, but we are exactly the same way. We are the same way. We are still egocentric, self-centered, self-consumed. In so many ways, everything we experience, everything that we do comes through the it's all about me lens. How does this affect me? How will it suit me? How will this help me? We are generally self-centered. So toddlers are gullible, self-centered, and so are we. Toddlers also believe their circumstances are the main problem of their lives. Think about it. They believe their circumstances are the main problems of their lives. They believe that they would be happy if they could get what they wanted when they wanted it. Dirty diapers should not exist. I should never be hungry. Why isn't mommy holding me for 983 hours straight? If he would only let me watch YouTube until my brains leaked out of my ears. Why do they put me in this dark and miserable prison every night and sometimes even before the sun goes down? The humanity. We are toddlers. We are toddlers too. We wrongly believe that our circumstances are the main problem that we face. And yet what modern research tells us, and of course the scriptures tell us, is that our circumstances amount for a fraction, amount to a fraction of our troubles. We are gullible. We are self-centered. We believe the circumstances are the main problem of our lives. Finally, toddlers are fiercely independent. They are fiercely independent. Even though toddlers need us, they live like they don't. Even when they are yelling for our help, they will say, often in the same breath, 
I don't need your help. The I can do my own seatbelt phase of my children's life, that was the best. I can do my seatbelt by myself. Great. I wanted to be an hour late to work today. I can do everything by myself. When we are honest with ourselves, even as adults, we are spiritually immature. An independent streak runs right through our hearts. We believe that we can survive independently. We can go throughout this world with God and the church. And so we will yell for help. We will. But in the same breath, we will say to him, I can do it myself. Paul's point is not that we are without hope. He is simply saying that we are immature. We are immature and we now must grow into maturity. We must grow into maturity. The goal of the Christian life is to grow. We are to become spiritually mature in Christ Jesus. So verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Our spiritual destiny is to grow in maturity and become like Jesus in every way. That is not meant to put a weight on us like how can I possibly do that? It is meant to lift our spirits and say, this is something that the Lord wants for us. He has created us so that we can grow into him who is the head, Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to say a couple of things about spiritual maturity. Two things are this. Spiritual maturity will be inevitable and gradual. Spiritual maturity, if you are in Christ Jesus, will be inevitable, but it will also be gradual. So first it will be inevitable. In other words, you should expect growth when you become a Christian. You should expect it. You should expect to become more humble, more gentle, more patient, more loving. Just like you would be concerned if you were a child and you stopped growing physically, so you should be concerned if you stopped, stopped growing spiritually. Now, if you are thinking, I don't feel like I am growing, I don't think I have improved much at all, I understand that better than anyone. But this is where we say that our growth, while inevitable, will be gradual. In other words, our growth in Christ will take time. One summer I took my children, my young children to a park and there was this massive, healthy, strong maple tree. I don't know how old it was, but you had to stand far back to get the whole thing into view. And I remember thinking to myself, that's what I want to be someday. That is what I want to be someday. I want to be strong spiritually. I want to be healthy spiritually. But I said that also because I know I am not like that, but I am like that in years past when that tree was just a seed and then a sprout and then a small sapling and then grow and then grew and then grew and then grew. My growth is barely perceptible. I grow so slowly. And so honestly, it is best not to look forward to see how far you have to go, but to look backward and see how far that you have come. So where do we look? Where do we look for that? Where do we see growth? Look at verse one. 
I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now listen closely. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. In other words, you know that you are growing when you become humbler, gentler, more patient, more loving, united, and at peace. Let's just take one of those, they take those each one at a time. Humility. What is humility? Humility is the belief that you are no better than anyone. And Christians have a special humility because we have been saved by sheer grace. Humility is the deep awareness of our sin. We are so bad that Jesus had to die for us. The son of God, the divine one, the one who has lived forever in eternity with the father and the spirit had to come down and die for us. That is how bad our sin was. But humility is also the deep awareness of what we have received. We are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. To the degree that you understand those two truths, that Jesus had to die for you and that he was glad to die for you. That is when you will grow in humility. I was once the worst of sinners. Now I have been saved entirely by the blood of Jesus Christ. So how do you know that you are growing in this type of humility? Very simply, you assume more easily, more readily that you could be wrong. That you could be wrong. You focus less on the sins of others. When you have issue with someone, you do not think about them and the speck in their eye. You know this from Jesus. You think about the log in your own eye first. What am I bringing to the table here that is causing disunity? T.S. Lewis said that you do not think of yourself less, but you simply think, sorry, you do not think less of yourself. Let's get this right. So you don't hate yourself. You don't chide yourself. When you are humble, when you have the knowledge that you are a sinner, but that you have been raised with Christ in his life forever and ever, we begin to think of ourselves less. We just stop thinking about it. We grow in humility. Gentleness. Gentleness. Gentleness flows from humility. This is what we said in my small group the other night. Gentleness flows from humility. We are gentle, meek, tender, and compassionate because we know we are no better than anyone. If you think about it, harshness, brashness, overbearingness, it comes from arrogance. It comes when we're at power, we have power, and we feel superior to other people. And so we can just crush others in our midst. But spiritual maturity means gentleness. It means treating people how you want to be treated. Which means that nothing that we do is harsh. We are concerned about how we say things. We kill with kindness. We strive to understand what others are thinking and feeling. We grow in gentleness. Humility, gentleness, patience. Here's the proper definition of patience in the Greek. This is the Greek translation of this word, the definition. Patience is a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation 
or misfortune and without complaint or irritation. <laughs> that, is a hard, that is a high bar. That is a high bar. You do not freak out no matter the circumstances, how badly you are treated. You don't complain, you don't lose it, you remain calm, thoughtful, even hopeful. You understand that your anxiety will not solve the problems of tomorrow. Spiritual humility is patience. It is gentleness, it is humility. Sorry, spiritual maturity is humility, gentleness, patience, love, love. Let me tell you, I can do all of these things that we've talked about, all of them. I can be humble. I can be gentle. I can be patient as long as I'm not around people. The second you insert human beings into any part of my life, all bets are off. But the call of the Christian is to walk in love. Love compels us to do all of these things. The call of the Christian is to walk in love by bearing up, by enduring each other in love, and not just when people are acting as they ought to. We don't just love people when we are enjoying them. To love people means to bear them up, even when, maybe especially when, they're unlovable. Love does not lead us to selfish isolation. Love leads us to enter into the messiness of friendships, of parenting, of marriage. The NLT translates it this way, the New Living Translation. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. You just assume it. You assume that this is what it, is, what it means to be in relationship with other people. Spiritual maturity is humility, it is gentleness, it is patience, it is love, and finally, it is unity and peace. Unity and peace. We are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Spiritual maturity is marked by our unity with others. We're going to get to, that, to this part of one by, this idea that we are one by the Lord into this life, into this unity, but Paul understands that spiritual maturity at the very least means closeness, unity, oneness, having peace with other Christians. We know we are mature when we are eager for unity, when we strive to meet with, break bread with, live life with each other. No matter how far apart we are, we strive for unity. We strive to make peace. We are made for maturity in Christ to do all of these things. And then they come together in the foundation of unity inside of a church. We do all of these things together. They are absolutely necessary. And it's like a recipe for a church to be humped, for a church to be spiritually mature and united. We must be humble with each other, gentle with each other, patient with each other. We must love each other. We must seek peace. Together, we must seek peace together. Those are high and lofty goals. That is true. How will we get there? Well, last point, we must grow by unity. We must grow by this unity. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What is unity? What is Christian unity? It is not because we have the same language or culture or background or skin color. We are united as a people because of Jesus Christ. We are called. Every single person in this room, if you claim Christ, you are called into the church of Christ. For you have one Lord, one baptism, one God, and the Father of all who is over all and through all. We are united as a single entity. We are united as a single entity because of our Lord, our faith, our baptism. And we have the same God, the same God who reigns over us. And so to grow in spiritual maturity, we must ground ourselves in this truth. Always run back to it. In every circumstance, in every way, run back to the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, there are things that flow out of this. Let's just mention a few of them. First, put your gifts to work. Put your gifts to work. But the grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We are not in faith, but we are different at the same time. It's a beautiful thing that we come in, not with different culture, different background, but with different gifts. The Lord has given each of us different things to be used in his church, in the world. God has graced us with different personalities. May they be used for his kingdom. Paul says very clearly in verse 11 that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So that means that every person in this church is a minister of the gospel. When you leave this place, you do not take off that hat. You don't walk out of church and go, okay, I'm not a Christian anymore. At At home, I'm just... No, when you walk out of this place, you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are to do the work of ministry so that we may build each other up. So God did not give us our gifts mainly, actually mainly, for our own building, but for the building of the body of Christ. Put your gifts to work. Follow the lead of your leaders. Follow the lead of your leaders. Verse 11 again. That is not the right verse. Verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints. So Paul is just quickly, he's talking about the church's leaders, right? The church's leaders. Some of the, the, the leaders in this list do not exist any longer. For example, the apostles. We do not have apostles anymore. But the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers still do. You must know the vital role that your leaders play. We are supposed to equip you in teaching and training, in discovery and discipleship to help unleash you into ministry. Friends, if you feel neglected here, seek us out. We are supposed to help you discover your God-given gifts and find a way to use them. 
And also, pray for us. Pray for us because we have taken on a burden that the Lord says is a burden. It is a happy one, but we need your prayer. Put your gifts to work. Take the lead of your leaders. Last one, and this is where we're going to end this morning. Speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. This may be the most important section. Rather, speaking in the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. You've heard this before. Speak the truth in love. It is hard. And yet it is perhaps the most important thing that we do. We must handle the truth with extreme care so that we see our brothers and sisters grow in Christ. If you want your brothers and sisters to grow in Christ, you must speak the truth. There are, of course, two dangers embedded in this. The first is that we will speak the truth without love. I'm going to get some help from John Stott here. He says this, Thank God that there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. But sometimes they are conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch, their muscles ripple, and the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. Are you a person who speaks the truth but does not do it in love? What is the opposite error? To have love without the truth. It's very possible that this is the one that we must focus on. In this day, in this age, in this time, it's very possible that we struggle the most to have love but not have the truth. John Stott again. Others make the opposite mistake. They are determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit brotherly love, but in order to do so are prepared even to sacrifice the central truths of revelation. What do you mean that the central truths of the scriptures, what we are united by, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, what is revealed to us in the scriptures. So friends, do you try to love without also speaking the truth? Are you like a doctor who withholds a cancer diagnosis because he does not want his patient to feel fear? Or financial planner who refuses to tell his client he's spending too much money because it will hurt his feelings? Will we speak lovingly and truthfully to the friend who keeps looking at porn? Will we share the hurt that we feel when her husband says something cruel? Will we chastise, yes, chastise your brother or your sister contemplating having an affair? Will we speak the truth in love about Jesus Christ and who he is? There is one Lord, one body, one baptism. It is him or nothing. Will we speak the truth of the gospel? The truth presented with humility and gentleness and patience, that is loving. That is loving. So I was praying this morning, and I felt something was missing from what I had written. And so I was talking to the Lord, and I thought about this 
uh, series that I've been starting, the things I've been thinking through as I have been working it out with other people, especially in my small group. And I do want to speak some truth in love for the sake of our church. It was hard for me to boil it down into a few words, but I'm going to say it this way. My main concern with our church right now is that I believe that we have the tendency to look down on, we tend to disparage and speak poorly of nations and cultures, not our own. I'll say that again. My main concern with this church is that we tend to look down on, we tend to disparage and speak poorly of, think poorly of nations, not our own. On the one hand, I want you to know that it is healthy and good to love your country, to love your cultural heritage. Not every part, but in every country there is something to celebrate. Jesus does not ask us to forget where we came from. We should celebrate what makes our nations and cultures distinct and interesting and good. But what is the problem with that? What is the problem when we take that patriotism, that love of country, too far? When we take what makes our nations, our cultures distinct, interesting, and good, we begin to believe that we are better than others, that we are better and the best because of it. The problem is that when we subtly or not so subtly believe that all other countries are not good. Now listen, I don't say that as something that could happen. I say it because I know that it does happen. I've seen it. I've heard it. I have felt it. And I have seen it. I have felt it. And I've heard it in my own heart. And so my challenge to you and to me is to be very careful about the way you speak about nations and cultures, not your own. Be very careful about what you think about your opinions, especially about cultural differences. Rather, in humility, gentleness, and love, celebrate what makes other people distinct and unique and beautiful. Learn about and rejoice in their culture and history and people. If we can do that, if we can begin to do that and push out those things push out those ways in which we have fostered disunity from our own hearts, we will begin to come together. But mainly because of this. Because of the indicative that Christ Jesus has died for us and he has made us sons and daughters of God. And the imperative is this, that we must now grow. We must now grow in unity together. May we do so by God's grace. Let's pray. Let's just take a few minutes to respond to the word, respond to the Lord.
Lord, I do not know if this was an uplifting message. Not everyone is supposed to be, but I do pray that our spirits are raised. Perhaps raised in a way like surgery that we need, that hurts, but will grow us, will make us better. Lord, I pray that we are hearing you well, that we are seeing you well, that we understand your heart, that we are seeing your humility, your patience, your love, and the unity you have together in the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are peace. I may that peace descend on us. May it descend on us and come up through our hearts that we may come together as your people for your glory, for our good. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. May he be with us. Amen.